Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast. My name is Mark Striegel. What is going on? We are here at, I guess, kind of nearing the end of the summer. August 18th is the day I am recording this little host wrap here, and I'm going to post this the same day kind of no frills we're not doing any music today we're just going to talk rock with greg renoff what better a person to do that with uh this guy of course wrote the great book van halen rising which i truly enjoyed a number of years back and then more recently i mean one of the few good things that happened in 2020 was that greg and ted templeman the world famous producer released his autobiography uh, Ted Templeman's autobiography, and it is an awesome read slash listen. I listened to it on Audible. Uh, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, is a must-read for any fan of rock. And this book got me so excited about music that I would have normally probably never went and looked for. I mean, for example, like Nicolette Larson and... You know, I, I knew the big hit single from her that Neil Young had written. I, I knew about that song because it, it was like a disco hit when I was a kid. I, I guess I'd call it a disco hit, 70s soft rock disco hit. But uh, little did I know, like I didn't know Eddie Van Halen played guitar on that debut record from her. Um, he's on a song called Can't Get Away From You. If you go listen to that on Apple Music or Spotify, you will distinctively hear the guitar stylings of Eddie Van Halen that just sound that no one else can get and if they do you know they're they're one of the few but um yeah and especially in not in 1978 when he did the nicolette larson record and the debut van halen record i mean the guitars aren't quite as 
booming as they would be on a Van Halen record, but that's not Nicolette's style. But, you know, I, uh, listen, I knew Eddie had done other things outside of Van Halen, not really a lot, but a little bit here and there. I never knew about this. And that's something really cool I discovered in the Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music book by Greg Renoff and, of course, Ted. So without further ado, Again, we're not doing any music today. Um, I'm just, I'm sort of on vacation, not really like it's a working vacation because I got hired to do Metal Crush. And this is my last week on Metal Crush. My last paid day with Sci-Fi is Friday, and that's because they hired me to do four episodes. And the final and fourth episode has to be turned in, and it goes live on Monday. So, of course, if you follow my Twitter, I will be sending that out. On Monday, we got Corey Taylor from Slipknot on that episode. It's a great episode, so please stay tuned for that Metal Crush and and like it and share it and and tweet Sci-Fi and tell them to bring it back for more. Bring Mark Striegel back to do more Metal Crush episodes, <laughs> right? Because uh, I want to do more. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work. It was six, seven day work weeks and long hours, but. I enjoyed it immensely, especially considering I was working retail before before that. My television career had kind of gone on hold for a bit. So this has really been a great experience um, doing another TV production job. I appreciate anybody who watched them. If you didn't, it's not too late. There's four episodes up on YouTube. Actually, three right now. As of next week, there'll be four. Uh, so, yeah, thanks, guys, and let's do this. This is my chat with Greg Renoff. Check him out on Twitter, and I'll link that in the show notes on TalkingRock.net. Check me out on Twitter. Talking Metal is my handle. I'm trying to get more interaction on Twitter. It's weird. I, I get interaction on Facebook and Instagram, but for some reason, I feel like I just I don't excite people on Twitter. So I'm trying to figure out how to do that. So, uh, yeah, retweet me or, or engage me in conversation and i'm definitely there for you on twitter all right here we go greg renoff mark striegel talking ted templeman here on talking metal hey it's mark striegel and i've really really been enjoying a book lately i'm actually listening to it on audible it is uh, just about done with it amazing listen and read ted templeman a platinum producer's life in music. And we are joined by Greg Renoff here, who worked with Ted on the book, wrote the book with Ted. How are you, Greg? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Man, thanks for being here. I I, I got to ask you, who does the, the voiceover for the Audible version? Because he's so perfect. Yeah, you know, it's uh, they, uh, ECW Press, which publishes the books, sells the rights off to a publishing company. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's completely out of my controller pay grade. So I'm glad you, you like it because it's always just like, here's what's happening. It's never, you know, people have sort of asked me about, you know, who voices the books and do you get to pick? And no, yeah. Um, I forget, is, is it Runette? Dave, uh, forget his first last name. I think his first name, uh, last name is Runette. But yeah, right. he did a good job. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what Sean type Runette, of... Sean that's his name. What type of reaction you're getting to him. But I, I, I really like his voice. I think it works good with, with this. And what a story... This guy has. I mean, I, I I knew about Ted, you know, the Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, but you know, there was so much I'd forgotten, like you know, like Clapton and and the the Aerosmith album, and so much stuff in there. Uh, let's let's go 
back to the beginning, and I know we, we don't have all night to talk about this, and I know my listeners are hard rockers, so we will try to focus on that stuff. But first of all, let me, let me tell you that the reason this book takes me a little bit longer to get through is because it's so awesome and gets me so excited about the music that I have to put, the, the, put it down and go listen to the entire Captain Beefheart record three times, you know, and then go back to the book, you know, because it gets you that excited about the music. Yeah, you know, for me, I, it's great to hear. I spent a lot of time, obviously, talking to Ted about these records, and you mentioned the Captain Beefheart record. I had never heard the Captain Beefheart record before I started talking to Ted about his life. He talked, I mean, I knew it probably from the discography. I'd probably seen it like, oh yeah, Clear Spot. I'd never listened to it. And he said, oh yeah, Don and I did it. And he started telling me these crazy stories about working with Beefheart. And, you know, then, it's like, you know, I had to sort of immerse myself in this music to, to be able to write the book because he would be talking about songs and I'd have to really listen to the the record from front to back numerous, numerous times. So I, I understand what you're, what you're saying. Cause I, you know, I would spend, you know, I'd take a walk and I'd listen to the Captain Beefheart record and come back and I'd call Ted and talk to Ted about it. So yeah, that was one of the real pleasures for me actually was to be able to dive into a lot of this music that beyond the, as you mentioned, the stuff, the Aerosmith, the Van Halen that I was more familiar with, obviously from growing up, listening to those records to listen to the more, um, uh, wide-ranging things that Ted had done, it was fantastic for me to kind of go, oh my God, this is really, really, really cool. Uh, the rhythms on the, you know, the, the rhythm stuff on the Captain Beefheart and the bizarre vocals and, you know, the whole, the lyrics and just the whole um, very different type of music that I would normally listen to that I ended up loving. So it was cool. Yeah. And I mean, what a life this guy's had. I mean, it's, it's really incredible. Like, and it's not just the music, it's hanging out with, you know, Governor Brown and, and Linda Ronstad and, and the Laurel Canyon scene and, and growing up in California and going on a, a crazy, like, what was it like a three month European trip when he was younger. I mean, I, I listened to this. I'm like, wow, this guy has lived. This guy has truly lived. The car crash he had growing up listening to jazz. Where did he grow up in California again? Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. And is that... that's like Central Coast. Right. Is that where the Doobies were from? They're from basically from San Jose, but it's the same neck of the woods, right? So I think that's one of the reasons why they they connected when they met was that they basically grew up, you know, the same uh, general area of California together. Yeah. So Harper's Bazaar, I mean, we'll fast forward to that because this is the band that, that, that Ted had. He was in the band and he scores a number one hit with this band, right? There, they, it was. I don't think it was a number one, but it was. It was a big Billboard hit. It was like top ten Billboard single. Um, you know, and this is the main Billboard hit chart. So yeah, it was, this was in 1967. They had a song called "Feeling Groovy," Written that by uh, was the, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah, the cover song, and so they did um, a vocal um, soft rock version of it, and it really, really took off. And so Ted, being you know, kind of just an unknown. Uh, musician to a guy who was on all sorts of late night shows, got to play with an incredible array of people. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, obviously anyone listens to the show like Bob Hope, Raquel Welch, they did the sort of, they became sort of the, the, the band of the, of the moment as like a soft kind of us, like a, kind of like the association of fifth dimension. If people know those groups, you know, and they had their, they had their, um, their moment in the sun and they really uh, did a lot of touring. They toured with the beach boys. So they got to do some really cool stuff. Yeah, and they go from, you know, basically being a band that was selling places out to 
you know what, like three years later, they're they're really down and out. I mean, they're playing to like thirty people in 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 clubs or a casino yeah, or somewhere, right. Right? right? Was that in Reno? I'm trying to remember where that yeah, was. Yeah, there's the casinos. Yeah, yeah, and and so at this point, he kind of is already thinking about producing, right? So he he is going to sessions, I guess, down in the Los Angeles area, and he drops in on some really incredible talents. I mean, superstars of of that time, uh, people like Sinatra and, and Elvis. And I, I thought it was really cool that well, one thing he observ- observed in the studio with both of those guys is they really kind of controlled the, the scene when they came in to the yeah. studio. Uh, any yeah. any memories you can share from the book on either one of those guys and Ted's encounters with them? Yeah, so Ted was kind of becoming a studio junkie. You know, the thing is that's interesting about those albums, and I thought thought people might want to hear this when we talked, is that, um, you know, at the time, most of the albums that were done, that were on the hit charts, were done with session musicians. So the, the people probably heard of the Wrecking Crew, which was kind right. of the the grade um, the grade A top guys in L.A. in the late 60s into the 70s who would get called for every single session. So you might have a band and they might be able to play, but it's like, oh, uh, well, we could have them play and have to spend four or five hours just trying to get a drum track down. Or we can have these guys do it, you know, in 15 minutes and get the drums done. So, um, you know, with, when Ted performed on a record, he only sang, but unlike some of the other guys in his band, he really got interested in the entire process of making records. And instead of like doing his part and leaving, he stayed from beginning to end and would watch the session musicians play. And so he sort of became a studio junkie. And he, this is how he ended up meeting a lot of the engineers who worked at the big studios in LA. And that's how the Sinatra and the Elvis thing both happened both times. He kind of got a tip from the engineers who were working on these records, go, hey, hang around, Sinatra's coming in, or hey, Elvis is gonna be here tonight, you should come down. Um, he got to see yeah Elvis and Sinatra record in in L A. Tina um, Turner right Ike yeah and yeah Tina, got to see too. Tina Turner and so he got to see these these really you know incredible um, legendary talents and I think that was part of what you know set Ted afire as the whole studio addiction thing where he really wanted to do this as a career and began to realize that over time that as as a vocalist and as a musician he probably didn't have the talent to sustain like a long career. You know, especially when he was thinking about the guys he was comparing himself to. He just didn't think, you know, I can sing, but I can't sing like Sinatra. I can, you know, I can play drums, but I can't play drums like the guys in the Wrecking Crew. He wanted to try to to transition to doing something where he'd be on the other side of the glass. Right on. And he, I remember he says about uh, Sinatra came, came into the studio and just didn't, you know, here's Ted, an unknown, kind of hanging out in the studio. And Sinatra comes up to him and is like, how do you like my shoes? <laughs> yeah, that was one of the best stories Ted told me. Yeah, that like Sinatra, like he was staring at Sinatra and Sinatra kind of walked over to him and said, hey, kid, hey, kid, come here. You know, and like, how do you like my shoes? They look great, Mr. Sinatra. Thanks. You know, I just got him and like walked into the studio. Yeah. Um, you know, Ted said he was just blown away. And, and I think in part that was one of the things that really um, made Ted want to make records to seeing someone like Sinatra where it was done where there was really, you know, it wasn't necessarily all one take, but it was, but everyone was in the same room together. It was an orchestra with a huge band and he got up there and sang with all of those musicians in the room. And it was, you know, it was in, in effect a live session, you know, that was, yeah. there was so he's like, you know, I think yeah. that was part of what captured Ted's imagination too. It was like, wow, you know, this is what you can do when you're really talented and you have a great um, team of people around a musician uh, of that of that caliber and i think that really it was just blew ted away too and i think the song he was recording 
to tie it into David Lee Roth, who was That's Life, right? Yes, that, yes, which exactly. is kind of one interesting. Of the, one of the songs had heard, um, Ted was there a couple of times, and uh, this was for the making of the That's Life record, and, uh, for a couple of the sessions for that record, and he heard them, he heard them cut. Yeah, That's Life, which is amazing. Which, of course, is the song that closed Eat Him and Smile many years later. Uh, again, just so many great stories, and we're encouraging everyone to pick up this incredible book, one of the, the best reads I've uh, experienced in a while, Ted Templeman. A platinum producer's life and music. We're talking with uh, what would co-author, right, Greg? Yeah, I mean, as told to, Ted really wanted to be an as told to, which was that you know he didn't want th- people to think that like he sat down at the typewriter and like you know, right. <laughs> he's like you know he wanted to make people know that you know he basically talked to me and I I put the book together and then he, of course he worked with me on that process too. But yeah, he was he was very generous about sharing credit and people who read the book or hear the audio book will know he's really is um. A guy who understands, you know, understands that it's uh, it's uh, appreciated by people you work with. Who you know, like they feel appreciated. And Ted was wonderful about that. He really made me feel feel good about doing it with him. And we'll get to the hard rock stuff quick, but um, let's talk about the Doobie Brothers, a band that I've always been a casual fan of. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, yeah. I've never owned any of their music, sure. but China Grove comes on the radio. I, I I love it. Minute by minute, the same thing, you know. And it was like, well, yeah, Michael McDonald, he was in there at some point. Like, I didn't really know, but I'm so crazed over the Doobie Brothers now. I, the, the book has caused me just to dive so hardcore into that band and, and what a band it was. Basically, one guy, Pat, right, was kind of the consistent through... Right all Correct. the years of the Doobie Brothers. And then Correct. there was there was Tom, and then there was Michael McDonald who came in, and, and they never were really in the band together. Uh, I know Tom, there was like one of the albums Tom sang right. a song on, but it, it was kind of two different eras of the band, correct? Correct, correct. Yeah, so um, the, uh, the Doobies had this first album that completely flopped, which Ted is the co-producer on it, and... Then the Doobies uh, gave Ted a call again, and Ted was able to do the second record by himself. And that was Toulouse Street, and that's the one with Blackwater and some of the other big, big hits. And they had this huge run in the early 70s with Tom Johnson, who's kind of you know, the, the guy we I think a lot of people would associate with the Doobies, which would be China Grove, um, you know, Long Train Run-In. Uh, these are the, the, the hits that sort of propelled the Doobies to massive success. I mean, at one point, I think in 74, they had three albums in the top – top 200, four albums in the top 200 billboard charts. I mean, they were just going great guns. And then um, Tom got ill, got an ulcer and really had to go off the road because he was so sick. And that's when they brought in Mike McDonald, initially as a backup musician, which is really interesting as part of the the book too, is that the initial deal was that the Doobies were on tour and Tom Johnson got sick and uh, Skunk Baxter, who knew knew Mike McDonald from the Doobie Brothers. They had both worked on Doobie Brothers records. No, basically, uh, hey, I know this. Steely Dan, right? Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Did I say Steely Dan? My apologies. Um, you know, basically said like, hey, uh, you know, I know this guy who's, you know, he's a good singer and keyboard player. And then by the end of the tour, the guys who were in the Doobies, particularly Pat Simmons, who had been, you know, who was Tom Johnson's partner as a songwriter and the vocalist was saying, hey, we you know this guy's really good, Ted. You should hear this guy sing. And then they eventually would transition to having Mike be the front of the band while, while Tom had kind of stepped aside. Right. And one of my favorite stories in there about the Doobie Brothers in the book is the song What a Fool Believes and how they've done like 70 takes of it and they've been working on it for months. And they, they got to the point where they were just like, ah, oh, the song's no good. 
and he takes it into the A and R department at Warner Brothers, and he plays it for him, and everyone's just like, "That's an amazing song." He then goes back and does what? You well, know? yeah, that's the great story too. Yeah, yeah the great story is that um, the Ted talked to me quite a bit about how you know sometimes with a song, mm-hmm. as a producer. It's all about this sort of like this little tiny feel that can make a huge difference in the way you think the song should be carried out. And he talked about one of the songs on the Clapton record that, you know, he said, we just didn't get the feel right. Meaning Lenny Warrenker and Ted as the producers, he's like, it's a good song, but we just didn't quite get it right in retrospect. And What a Fool Believes was another one of these songs where Ted felt the drum part. He said he couldn't quite explain the feel he wanted to the drummers. And these are guys who are very talented drummers. And so at one point um, when they're basically getting ready to go, I don't know, we're just going to have to like maybe. We shelved this song for the next till the next record. Don Landy, who's Ted's uh, right hand man and engineered all the great records with Ted at Van Halen Records, the Doobie Brothers Records, said, "Hey Ted, go go tr- go try to play it. Go play it." And he's like, "No, no, no." He's like, "Go play it." So Ted got out from the you know the control room and went and played. Ted was a drummer and played the song, and that's actually the take with Ted on drums and the other one of the other drummers from the Doobies playing as well that made it to the, made it to the record. And you know so, that's not credited anywhere. So the yeah. only the only place yeah. I'm uh, that I think exposes that that i know of of course is your book because i went to wikipedia i went researching that i couldn't find anything that said ted plays the drums on what a fool believes yeah i did not know that and we also find out that he's done he did some of the backing vocals in in the studio with van halen and he always even on the clapton record you know he, he always tended to uh lend lend his musical talents in front of the microphone too for a lot of the people he was producing yeah, one of the funny stories he told me he always laughs about is people appreciate this. If you ever heard Forever Man, you know, there's timbales on it. There's those, like those Latin drums, and that's Ted playing them. He's like, he goes, he goes, I may have went a little overboard with that, but I was the producer. So, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's why I liked it. You know, he goes, I may, have, I may have had lost perspective on on that. But, you know, yeah, he played on a lot of stuff, performed and sang. Yeah, and, and the Clapton album, I mean, we'll, uh, yeah, I don't know if we have time to talk about everything, but it's all in this great book. A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, Ted Templeman, and we were talking with Greg Renoff, who wrote the book with him. Let's 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 go to Montrose. So he he's working with Van Morrison, does some incredible stuff with Van Van Morrison, which you write about in the book. But he he discovers the guitar player who's working with Van Morrison at this time. And that guitar player is who, Greg? Is Ronnie Montrose. Right. So this is where he connects with Ronnie at these Van Morrison sec, uh, sessions. And I guess it would have been a couple years later, Greg, that, that he actually really does a hard rock record, a couple records actually, with with Montrose, the band. Yeah. So, um, you know, when uh, Van uh, fired, in fact, fired Ronnie. Ronnie went off and did the Edgar Winter album. So like uh, Frankenstein, that amazing Edgar Winter album, that's Ronnie on guitar. But then, yeah, Ted and, and Ronnie reconnected and Ronnie presented this idea of kind of this hard rock band who was going to be kind of a, you know, kind of a, a classic quartet in the, in the spirit of Led Zeppelin. And uh, they put together a band, Ronnie did, and that was included uh, a guy credited as, as Sam Hagar, now, Sammy Hagar was like 19 years old at the time, and they cut this record in 1973, which was, you know, called Montrose. Yeah, and you know, he says he says in your book that you know the albums didn't really do as well as he was hoping. But I would point out that they were highly influential. I mean, in later in the book, you mentioned how Eddie 
Van Halen loved those records. And I know for a fact, Steve Harris of Iron Maiden loved those records, you know, so maybe not commercial smashes, but definitely very influential records. And let's let's talk about Van Halen. So he he discovers Van Halen. It's all in the book how this comes about. But but very hard on Dave. I mean, as somebody who loves Dave, I have to admit that the, when he when he you guys are talking about Dave in the studio for that first album and how they really struggled with his voice. I don't know. I, I felt a little bad or something. <laughs> I don't, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think Ted wanted to be wanted to be honest about the fact that, you know, he did a 180 on Dave. I mean, that was yeah. the thing he really wanted to be, to come out in the book, that to be like, look, you know, sometimes your first impressions of people and are, are incorrect and or people can improve and you can make something work. And I think that's really what he wanted to, to um, explain that, you know, he really did work a lot with Dave to try to get the vocals into shape for the first Van Halen record. And then to go from being, mm, I don't know if this is the right guy for Van Halen, basically right after he signs the band, to going, there's no way Van Halen would have made it without David Lee Roth. And then to basically be fighting behind the scenes to keep Dave in the band in 1985. It's kind of, an, it's like, that's what Ted really wanted to get that, you know, be honest about that, to be like, you know, I became Dave's biggest advocate in many ways in Van Halen, you know, to, to all, you know, cause I thought he was just, you know, um, killer i mean maybe not the biggest but you know what i mean he became like the, a big fan of dave obviously because he thought he just the vocals um the whole personality that came across and the lyrics especially how, how great dave was at writing lyrics and as a songwriter he thought he was just the perfect you know obviously as we all know the perfect guy for van halen yeah and something that you kind of got at in your first book on on well the, your your book on van halen i should say uh, was that you know dave's attitude and vibe and everything about him, his persona was so much of what not only became part of their sound, but just part of their success and their, their attitude. And I think Ted uh, does a good job at, you know, backing the, what that up, you know, what you kind of described in your, in the Van Halen book. In, yeah. In Ted the, really, really points to the song ain't talking about love. I mean, we talked about that pretty much every time we talked about Van Halen, I'm not even joking. Like that was song would come up. He's just talked about how he was, you know, just blown away by the the lyric that David come up with. And of course, with that riff, he said it was just like that was to him. He was like, this is it, man. This is the thing, because it was just so, you know, in some ways so simple. Right. But he's like the way Ed played the riff isn't really all that simple. If you're a guitar player, he's like, you know, it's a simple two chord song. And the lyric is just, you know, about like, you know, all about all about your disease and about, you know, fighting for what you want, even if you have to bleed for it. He said it was just like it just hit him. And he's like, this is incredible, this band. And, you know, that was um, just, uh, you know, I, I think the, um, the, the song that Ted would most po point to to say, if there's one song in my career, I am most proud of as a producer and love the most is actually that song. Right on. And 1984, uh, it gets ugly for, for Ted, you know, the Eddie builds his own studio and they're recording the 1984 record in there. And you never come right out and say this in the book, but I, I mean, I kind of can read between the lines what was going on there. I mean, it seems like Don and Eddie are—I'll just say it. I mean, they're—they're they're, they're coked out of their mind, right? I mean, that's what it seems like. I, I think if you rest, if you read between the lines, I mean, I think the thing that would be definitely clear is that one of the things that Ted feared about—and again, Ted is—Ted's honest about his own substance abuse in the book. I mean, he's never like walking around like I, you know, I was clean, I was an angel, um, but he feared 
home studio as a place where it becomes this, you know, more like a clubhouse than a studio that you basically, you don't have a clock running anymore to finish the record. You're not paying a bill for the studio. So there's this sort of sense that you could just stretch it out and just nothing, you know, nothing can get done. And I think that's what Ted was afraid of. And I think that's what actually in some ways came to pass in terms of the way the record got done. It just became, as Ted said, he felt like he was trying to grab lightning. Like he just said, like, you know, trying to get a song done, trying to get a song done. And if you like didn't do it right that day, you're like, it might not happen for two, three weeks, like just because things were so crazy. But yeah, it was it was definitely, a, a um, you know, something that was. I mean, destructive to Van Halen. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean that in terms of the and album. And destructive was, to his relationship with Don, it seemed, who yeah, had done right. all these and, great records with him through the years. And, and with that, I mean, to be honest with you, and with that too at that time, definitely, it definitely caused a lot of, you know, I think bruised egos. And I think, um, I know from Ted's perspective that he worked really hard on the record and felt, even when it was over, you know, he just wanted to kind of move on from the, the personal thing. So when 5150 was done, and Ted did not produce it. And there had been a lot of, you know, kind of hard, hard feelings around the whole production of that, who was going to produce it. And because Ted passed on it, that Don Landy and Ed Van Halen went to Ted's office and Ted gave his advice on sequence again. He also did that in OUA one too. So, you know, again, as much as there were, there were obviously problems. They never like, you know, it was never like, I hate this guy or, you know, whatever. It was never like that type of thing, but yes, Don and Don Landy and uh, Ted Templeman who had worked together from, 1971 up through 1983 and pretty much everything Ted did Don and Ted did together they stopped working together that's true right and right after that insanity he's in the studio with Clapton in New York he's recording the voice of America the VOA record with Hagar which is interesting too before Hagar joins Van Halen uh, right. Then in the studio with Aerosmith doing an album that I always loved, done with mirrors. I, I just felt like for whatever reason it, it didn't it didn't um, blow up like it should have. But I mean, just mind boggling the the stuff that this guy's done. The Clapton stuff. Uh, who was the guy who was in the studio who was the bad influence on Clapton? So, and so uh, yeah, it's, I mean, so it's. Um... Jerry Williams, right? Who was a songwriter? Jerry Lynn, who, Will, Jerry Lynn Williams or something, right? Yeah. Who wrote? Who wrote? Um, Forever Man, uh, I think, right? Forever Man, uh, to show what love can do. I mean, if you go through his, if you look him up on Wikipedia, people should look him up. He wrote some amazing, like pretty much all, like the you know every you know like Bonnie Raitt. You go through all these different people. All Worked these with blues, Robert Plant too. Yeah. yeah, right. All these blues rock got um stars in the that of that genre he was kind of the guy who would come up with these amazing songs ted was like this guy was an incredible incredible songwriter but yeah he was he was kind of a you know he was kind of a mess in the studio to work with and it was really difficult um the the story from the book of course is that clap he and clapton kind of you know, disappear right. for a little in new uh, york city <laughs> yeah for like a lost on. weekend for themselves so it was a little bit of a an issue but um yeah, that was another another uh, really amazing because I oh, I bought that album as a kid. Um, I, I did too. Yeah. That in August, I think, which was the yeah. one after it. I loved both those records. Yeah, cool. And so I, I know we're running out of time here, Greg. But tell me one thing you learned that you didn't know because you're an expert on all this Van Halen related stuff. Tell me one thing you learned from the book or from working with Ted on this book about one of my all time favorite records, Eat 'Em and Smile. Oh God. I mean, there's so many things. I mean, I think for me, one of the most the, interesting uh, things that you, the learned interesting about that, thing. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think is that 
that Ted was really not into the movie idea. I mean, I thought that was really interesting too, because I, you know, I don't think he'd ever talked about it, but when he talked about how, you know, it was initially supposed to be basically a soundtrack for a movie. That was the original idea that Dave was going to do this movie, as everybody knows. And and the whole, the music, a lot of the songs were initially were, were put together was going to be all part of like the, the soundtrack from the original, you know, original music for the film, Eat em and Smile. And that Ted hated the whole idea of doing a movie. He was like, I don't want to do this. And basically how excited he actually was to do the album, you know, because he said, I got this incredible band. So that for me, that was one of the, the more intriguing things because the recorder was always this as you know as a van halen fan anyone who knows who read you know any of the magazine articles in the 80s there's always this assumption like you know that ted was like oh great you know i got dave we can make movies we can do all this stuff we don't have to deal with van halen anymore when in fact it's actually that's completely opposite from what ted wanted ted wanted van halen to stay together and in fact ted didn't want anything to do with the whole movie side of things he thought it was just a waste of time he says at one point in the book he says to you that he was hopeful that you know maybe they would just do this one record with with Hagar and then they do you know Edom and Dave would go do an album or EP or maybe yep. an album and then that he was hopeful that yeah maybe once they got it out of their system you know in 1985-86 they'd they'd come back together uh or, or maybe I guess it would have been or the 85 yeah. that they would have done that and then he was hopeful that anyways the band would have come back together right. so I, I found that uh, interesting and, and telling in how much he really, really wanted those guys to just keep it together. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, even he talked about even, you know, I said, what about the other guys in the band? He's like, look, I would have helped any of those, like Greg and Billy. He's like, I would have helped all those guys. And they, all of those guys would have been fine if Dave had just sort of, you know, broken up the band. But yeah, that's interesting because I never would have suspected that either. But, you know, he kind of used the example of Aerosmith to say, you know, where Tyler and Perry kind of went their separate ways for a few years, but eventually it's like you kind of come to your senses and you're like, okay, right. this is the real deal. You come back, but it never, it never happened, obviously. Right. Great stuff, Greg. Uh, excellent book. How long did it take you to write this? Oh, God. I started writing it probably in earnest in 20, 2016. So it took a look, it took longer than I thought it was going to take, in part because of the things we talked about where I really wanted to do justice to the early Doobie Brothers stuff and the Captain Beefheart and the Little Feet. And, you know, I, I had to do a lot of self education to be really able to do this book the way I wanted to. So um, it started really in 2016, going at it to do it. And eventually, yeah, <laughs> finish in 2019. I, I love it. It's a page there. turner, man. I love every Thanks. every Thanks. bit of it. You know, even the Jerry, like I said, the Jerry Brown stuff, the Carly Simon and Groucho Marx stuff. There's so many cool little bits of entertainment history, you know, legendary uh, old school Hollywood stuff that that is is just incredible. What What a life this guy has led. How how's he doing health wise right now? He's obviously up there in, in age. What is he eighty? Approaching eighty? He's seventy seven. So okay. he's doing fine. I mean he's just like everybody else, you know, he is he is kind of especially in that demographic, they're sort of, you know, very, you know, kind of locked away. Um he's doing fine. I haven't seen him in a long time because actually we were supposed to do book signings in in uh April when the book came out in California and all those got canceled, the whole right. shebang. And so sure. um, you know, it's uh He's, but he's doing, as far as I know, he's doing, he's doing just fine, doing his thing. So, what's the last record he produced? Was it? Did he go back to the Doobies? Is that what, the last one he produced? Was World Gone Crazy? Yeah, uh, which is kind of a good place to end it because he started. Yeah, basically started with the Doobies, ended with the Doobies. Yep. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you for this book, Greg. I love it. Oh, great! Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it being on. A big thanks to Greg for joining me. Definitely pick up the book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life and Music. While you're at it, pick up Van Halen Rising, rising to uh, 
two must reads for any fan of Van Halen and any fan of rock in general. All right, we'll talk to you next time, guys. Enjoy the rest of your summer. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.